turn, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at the first four verses. Actually, we're going to look at a little smaller portion of that, but we'll get through the first four, and then I'll explain it a little bit later. Matthew 10, 1 through 4 says, And he called him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In the uh, 1970s, that's a long way back, Multnomah School of the Bible would send out two-thirds of its student body into neighborhoods of Portland to do evangelism. And the remaining third would stay back and gather in the chapel and pray for those two-thirds that were sent out. The, the story I'm about to relate comes from someone who was there, and they tell me of a, a visit to one house in, in a neighborhood close to the school. Two students approached one, the front door, knocked, and a lady opened it. Holding a tract out to her, they delivered the standard opening line. Hello, we are students from Multnomah School of the Bible, and we have a question for you. If you were to tithe today, where would you spend eternity? Well, the students stood there smiling and awaiting the woman's answer. Upon hearing their greeting, the lady grabbed the track, sobbed that her husband had just died that this morning, and then slammed the door in their faces. First they were taken aback, and then they felt defeated. They left and returned to the school to attend the debrief, which they weren't looking forward to. And they thought, we failed. Surely God cannot use our miserable failure for his purpose. This was a mess. They had never experienced that before, never wanted to experience it again. They were devastated. But I'll come back to that story a little bit later. So as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story is in about 35 minutes. Yeah, you have to stay here for that whole time. The scripture we've been hearing in Matthew has been one of, as believers, rising us to a new level of purpose. Here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we are finding out the Lord has called his disciples to be fishers of men. Am I speaking too loudly? Okay, because I'm hearing ringing. A new purpose, it's the fishers of men is a new purpose for them and an expanded purpose for us. At the end of Matthew 9, we read that Jesus told his disciples to pray that the Lord would, of the harvest would send out workers into his fields. They did that, but then he called them to be the workers. Which is what Jesus is saying is that unless you apply what you've learned, you've learned little. Corey Ten Boom agrees with that, and she has said, the best learning I had came from teaching. Jesus asked his disciples to just not see the world as he saw it, 
which was looking out on lost humanity through his eyes and his heart of compassion, but they themselves were called to invite the lost into the Lord's, into the Lord's kingdom. It applies to us also, because simply praying for the lost is insincere without the willingness to go serve. He did not choose these 12 to be his disciples because of their faith. Excuse me, I skipped a couple lines. Now, as we see in verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples. He didn't draft them, force them, or ask them to volunteer. He simply chose them to serve him in a unique way. He did not choose the 12 to be his disciples because of their faith. It often faltered. He didn't choose them because of their talent and ability. No one stood out. He didn't choose them for their intellect. They mostly didn't understand what he was talking about. The disciples represented a wide range of backgrounds and life experiences, but they had no more leadership potential than those who were not chosen. But the one characteristics they did share with each other was their willingness to obey Jesus. He did not twist their arms, make them do something they didn't want to do. They did this willingly. And with that in mind, we can summarize what Jesus did in these words. And this is the big idea. The king delegated to a diverse set of 12 his authority to conduct his work for the immediate and distant future. A little later, we'll look at some of the characteristics of these 12 men that Jesus called. And I think that you might very well see some of yourselves in them, maybe. In our ongoing study of this account in our, our Lord's life and ministry, chapter 10 begins a new section, a new dimension, if you will. Jesus Christ is going to commission these 12 disciples on his as his personal ambassadors and send them out. They will then become his apostles, and chapter 10 is the record, or beginning the record, of their first sending to aid in the warning of men of the inevitable harvest of judgment that's coming. Now the major thrust of the passage really begins in verse 5. From there on to the end of chapter, you have the most marvelous instruction about discipleship. It's a great picture of that. But we'll cover that in the next few weeks. Not me. I get to let John do that. But before we get to verse 5, we really must look at the first four verses because hidden behind them is some tremendous richness that you might otherwise skip over in casual reading. For this morning, I want to mention three features of the first four verses. Three elements of the commissioning of the twelve. First their initiation, and we'll talk a lot about that. Then their impact, and we'll talk briefly about that. And then their identity, and we'll see their initiation in verse 1, their impact in verse 1, and then their identity is given in verse 2 through 4. As Matthew names them, we also find the same list in Luke and Mark, if you want to look that up. Now, as we look at this, I want you to do some thinking with me. I want to explain to you some of the things behind his preparation and the calling of these men. But I also want you to see how it applies to your own life. This is just not for historical context. This is directly applicable to us. 
I want you to make them directly applicable to you because it is a tremendous pattern of our own understanding of the pattern of discipleship. It shows how you should disciple someone else. It shows how God wants to disciple you. This is our Lord's discipling pattern. This is how he trained 12. First, let's look at the initiation of the apostles. And we only have one statement in verse 1. Matthew 10, verse 1 says, And he called them, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Now, as I was reading that, I asked myself, how did he do that? How did he start this? How did he get them involved? How did he get them to the place where he called them and then sent them? What was his process? And did he run into any obstacles along the way? I asked myself those things, and I'm going to answer them. First, let's look at the, the phrase itself and focus on the word call. So my, my sermon is on one word, believe it or not. The verb is proskeo, proskelio. It's a simple term. Kaleo means to call, and pros means toward. It's an intense word that means to call someone toward you. It has the idea of a face-to-face -face calling so that one can receive a commission. He called them before his face to give them commands, to give them a commission, to send them, to instruct them. It wasn't like, uh, I have something special for the first 12 to step forward, anyone? That's not what this means. It was direct to the point. It's, look at me. I want you. That's what that word means. Direct to the point. Notice something interesting also. Verse 2 says that they are the 12 apostles, but they're the disciples in verse 1. They were disciples when they were learning. They were apostles when they were sent. They've been trained, and now they're to go out. It's a change in the pattern of ministry for our Lord. He is ramping up because they are at a new phase in their training, moving from the classroom, if you will, to the field. It's time to evangelize. It's time to preach the kingdom. It's time, as verse 6 says, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as I looked at this, there were four phases in Christ's training of the 12. Number one was their salvation or conversion. And if you look sometime, not, not now, not, but some other time, at John 1, 35 to 51, you'll find there's an illustration of the initial calling to faith or calling to conversion or calling to, to salvation that our Lord used in, in the lives of these 12. He called many but there it points, pinpoints several of them who we know, and he calls out. And that is the first calling. They were called to believe. They were called to Christ in a conversion sense. But then after that, they went back to their jobs, back to their secular employment, and back to their homes. They did not just jump into service once they believed. Other things had to happen first. And then there came the second phase. And that is recorded for us in Matthew 4, 18 to 22. And this was phase two in the training of the 12. And those verses read, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, 
and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, in our looking back, they, they'd already been converted. I believe that they'd already been saved in the sense that, they, that we believe in conversion or salvation. They had already believed in Christ. They had already affirmed that he was the Messiah, as they did in John 1. But now he was calling them to leave everything they were doing and knew, and everything that they were doing and knew, and to follow him exclusively and totally. They were called to follow Jesus around for a few years to be trained. That was their schooling. And by the way, whenever, wherever Jesus went, there were many disciples, many people he was teaching. Some stuck around, and according to John 6, some left and no longer followed him. But amid this group, there were these special 12. And they were being trained along with everybody else, and perhaps even more specifically because the Lord knew that the 12 were special. Now, there's a third phase of their training. First, to conversion. Second, to ministry. And thirdly, they are to be sent out. And that's where we come in in verse 1 of chapter 10. This is not the final phase. This is the ascending out going two by two. They weren't ready to go alone yet. They had to have one another for support. It's like an internship. You don't necessarily go it alone. So he sent them out two by two. This is their internship. This is a time for them to go out on their first short-term missions assignment and get a feel for what was out there. What follows in verse 5 and following is the record of their internship and how they remained again a long time with the Lord being taught and taught and taught more and more. Then there was the fourth phase of training. And that was after the resurrection and after the ascension when Christ went back into heaven, the Holy Spirit came down upon them and they, then they scattered and went into all the world discipling the nations. And that was the final sending of the twelve. Phase four. So, there was a conversion phase, there was a calling to himself for training phase, there was a first experience or internship phase, and then there was a final sending. And as we come to chapter 10, we're in phase three. This is their first experience in the field. They were handpicked by Jesus from all the other disciples who followed him. He knew they were the ones and even handpicked Judas because he fit the prophetic plan. Think about that. He handpicked Judas, who eventually betrayed him. He was part of God's plan. Think about that for a while. He chose these 12 to be the ones who would go throughout the world to set up his church, verify his messiahship, and affirm his resurrection from the dead as well as his atoning death. He taught them and taught them that they might be the best possible representatives of the dynamic of the gospel. In the case of these 12, they were all chosen sovereignly. 
They play a critical role in the history of the world and in eternity, and it was his choice, his will, to meet his sovereign purpose. There was no executive search team. It wasn't, now how many of you would like to be apostles? Put up your hand. Yes, I see that hand. It wasn't like that. It wasn't, if you're a lousy fisherman or farmer or a tax collector, maybe you'd like to try the ministry instead. Uh, it wasn't like that either. It wasn't, get trained, become an expert, see the world, and take a journey of a lifetime. Nope, it wasn't like that either. They were called by the sovereign will and purpose of God. He knew the men he wanted. They were not consulted, and neither was anybody else consulted except God the Father. And that's all it took. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. A sovereign calling. Let's add to that. They were sovereignly chosen, but secondly, they were chosen after a night of prayer. Christ chose whom he would, but in his submission to the Father, it occurred only after he sought the Father's will. This is such a wonderful example in terms of discipling. As we select people that we might disciple, it should only come after great prayer. So that God can show us who it is and what it is all about that we are to give ourselves to. Look at Luke 6, 12 to 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. A full night of prayer before he called anybody or appointed anybody. At this point, we need to understand that if we do not have this moment in history, if this didn't happen for some strange reason. If Jesus does not select others to continue his message, if these guys do not go into the field and spread the gospel, we do not have Christianity. We wouldn't be here. We may be someplace else, but we wouldn't be here. We would only have a minor footnote if that in the history books. Because it just wouldn't have happened. So, the apostles were chosen sovereignly. They were chosen through prayer. And thirdly, and this is where most of Scripture takes us, they were chosen to be trained. Training was an essential part of their going out. And for them, it was training of years, walking with the Lord, following behind Him, learning everything they could, much of which they eventually understood. Uh, for us, it's a lifetime of reading Scripture listening to the Holy Spirit and learning from fellow believers, that's our training. That's our walk. They left their nets, boats, crops, businesses, tax-collecting stands, mothers, fathers, most of their siblings, and they wandered around behind Jesus. Most of us do not have to do that, but they did. Jesus knew they needed to be trained, to be taught, to become disciples, learners, before they could be sent, and that's exactly what happened. Now, it wasn't any easy job to train this bunch of oddballs. Uh, the best of them, their leader Peter, still didn't have a clue what he was doing even after the resurrection. Uh, it's good to see their defects because it gives us hope 
that if God can use them, he can use us. Now in training them, Jesus had to overcome five noticeable problems that they had. Notice this is the answer to the question, what roadblocks did he come up against? Five. There are probably more, but five will do. Uh, Number one, they lacked spiritual understanding. Now that's tough to start with, right? You're, You're going to work 12 guys into evangelizing the entire world to represent the God of the universe, and they have a basic problem. They do not understand spiritual truth. Oops. Oh, man. That, that, that's a tough way to begin, but that's exactly what he had to work with. Students who were thick, dull, and lacking any ordinary understanding of spiritual things. They didn't even understand the parables. Or most of them. I just can't but chuckle every time the Lord says to them, do you understand this? You know what they always said to, do you understand this? Yes, Lord, we get it, we sure do. No need to ask us twice, yep, we sure get it. Uh, What was the question? They said, yeah, they understood. And did they understand? No, they didn't understand. It was so hard to get through all their prejudices and their preconceived attitudes. Peter said to Jesus in Matthew 15, 15 to 16, says, but Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? My first year in college was very demanding because I was in an aerospace engineering track. That's tough. I took physics, calculus, and chemistry all at the same time. You're right. The problem was I needed calculus to get through physics and chemistry, but I was learning calculus at the same time, and they didn't necessarily match up week to week. So what I needed in week three, I learned in calculus in week five. Uh, That put me a little behind and why I left that track eventually. I was trying to use something that I did not, that I'd not yet learned. I was taking 18 hours and I was buried, listening as best I could, yet was not getting it at all. In a physics class, a guy asked a question and the professor answered it. The professor was in a big hurry to cover a whole lot of stuff and few really knew what he was talking about. Another guy raised his hand and you know what? He asked the very same question that the professor had just spent five minutes answering. And the professor said to him, Sir, he's being very polite, Sir, if you cannot ask a more intelligent question than that, do not ask a question. I have answered the question. Knock it off. And then he simply glared at the guy for what seemed like an hour. I'm sure it was only a couple seconds, but... But it was long enough for us to feel absurdly uncomfortable. (laughs) Can I make you uncomfortable? Well, everybody just shut up and nobody asked any questions after that. It was a great lesson about listening. It was a great lesson about taking note of what's going on. And our Lord is saying the same thing. I don't think he glared at his apostles, but it's the same situation. Do you mean you still don't understand that? 
Learn to listen and perceive. Now, how did, deal, how did Jesus deal with her lack of spiritual understanding? By teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching some more and more. In fact, when he came back after his resurrection, Acts 1 says he taught them the things about the kingdom of heaven for 40 more days. He didn't stop teaching. He dealt with their lack of understanding by instruction. But they also had a second problem. On top of that, lack of humility. They were a proud, jealous, envious bunch of dudes. Mark records how the Lord was walking down the road and they were walking behind him, elbowing each other and pushing and shoving and arguing like a bunch of teenage boys. Uh, that's my description, not Mark's, by the way. Mark 9, verse 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? He knows they were fighting behind him. What's going on? And they held their peace. They got sheepish and clammed up because they had been arguing amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. Nice guys, huh? Selfless, humble souls. All the time, our dear Lord is walking along, they're back fighting about who's going to be the greatest. And it didn't get any better when they got mommy dearest Mrs. Mrs. Zeppedee involved to advocate for her sons, James and John. She was the first recorded helicopter parent. And you can read more about that in Matthew 20, not the helicopter parent part. Now, how did he deal with their lack of humility? I believe he dealt with it by giving them a demonstration of his own humility. Personal example. He likened himself to a little child in Mark 9. He likened himself to a servant in John 13, 5, where he washed their feet. And then he gave a new commandment in John 13, 34, to love one another as I have loved you. Three examples of, of humility. In other words, he overcame their lack of understanding by instruction. He overcame their lack of humility by example and using the example of his own life as a teaching tool. But wait, there's more. They had a third problem, a lack of faith, which is severe if you're going to be in the ministry if you don't believe God, not believe in God, but don't believe God. Scripture records at least six times where Jesus said to them, Oh, ye of little faith. He would do so many things and they still didn't see what he was doing. What a bunch to work with and, and how do you ever transform into, the, into a group that will change the world? How do you do that? How did he deal with their unbelief? I believe he did this by miracles. Did this for a lot of people also, but for the disciples by mighty deeds showing them his power over and over again. The disciples needed to be sure and absolute and confident. And one of the purposes of his miracles was to show them that. They needed to know the resurrection really happened. He appeared to them, and he appeared to them again and let them touch him and feel him and see him. They needed to know. And all, was, all this was a part of the teaching process. They also had a fourth problem, lack of commitment. They would say, Peter said this, we will never forsake you. Why, 
everyone may forsake you, says Peter, but I'll never forsake you. I, I would never deny you. Oh, they really talked it up. But when it came down to the crisis of that terrible hour, where were they? Where were the 12? They were gone. We find Peter denying, Judas betraying, and the other 10 splitting, getting out of there and going who knows where. They couldn't manage it, and they were gone. How did Jesus deal with that? He dealt with it through prayer and more teaching. He didn't abandon them. He came back to them to give them more of himself. Now, their problems did not end there. Who ends on an even number of problems? There was a fifth problem, a lack of power. They were weak and helpless, and there are many illustrations of that, but the one I want to read to you is in Matthew 17, 14 to 16, which says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. After they had received the power to heal, they couldn't do it. They've been out trying to do their thing and they're doing all the motions, but nothing happens. Jesus continues. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith just like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. They didn't understand and didn't have faith in what he had done for them. They showed faith in intense prayer, but they didn't have power. And how did Jesus deal with that? He dealt with it in one marvelous, marvelous way. John 20, 22 says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1, 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's how he did it. Listen, the entire process that Jesus used to transform a ragtag group of nobodies into powerful messages of the messengers of the gospel is remarkably simple. Some of you have been taking notes. Here's the summary of everything I've said. The disciples were chosen sovereignly by God to be the associates of Jesus to establish the church. They were chosen through prayer. They were chosen to be trained, and in their training they had to overcome a lack of spiritual understanding through instruction, a lack of humility through example, a lack of faith through wondrous miracles, a lack of commitment through prayer, and a lack of power through the agency of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives. The germs of promise were there, and in time would yield the perfect fruit. He believed in the men he had chosen, and what was more, he had absolute confidence in his power to make them what he wanted them to be. Based on that, there's certainly hope for us. Let's move to talking about those guys. 
So now we spent 30 minutes on called. Let's look at verses 2 to 5, 2 to 4. And talk about and look at the guys who God selected to be taught by Jesus. At some times I identified with, with some of these guys, not all of them, but some of them, don't you? What, but what we know about these 12 in, individuals named in verses 2 through 4, what is it? Let's take a brief look. Not another 30 minutes, but let's take a brief look. Let's first look at the group. Six of Christ's apostles, one half of the inner circle, were apparently chosen from closely knit families. The brothers respected each other enough to listen and follow one another. The disciples, who were brothers, were Simon Peter and Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and the other James and Lebius. Now, Christ seemed to arrange the apostles two by two because it's better to go out into the, into the field with a partner. The first apostle mentioned is Simon, also called Peter. Simon means the one who hears or he who listens. No wonder Jesus changed it to Peter because Simon did not listen very well. Simon Peter was brash and bold. He asks and answers questions while the others shy away. Simon Peter was also a man of action. He had an impatient spirit, too. After his resurrection, the Lord told Simon Peter and the other apostles to wait in Jerusalem. Wait in there. But after some time had passed, Peter decided to return to fishing. John 21.3 says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And the rest said to them, oh, we'll go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but Jesus had the last word. That night they caught nothing. No fish for you. Yet, the Lord turned such a man into Peter the apostle, a fisher of men. Are you like Simon? Acting before thinking, boastful, proud, impetuous. Without question, Peter's one of the most there's the one most people can identify with. One minute, he was walking on water by faith. The next, he was sinking in doubt. Even so, as a disciple, he was dearly loved by Christ, holding a special place among the 12, despite his personality problems. The next apostle is Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. Now, Peter and Andrew were both originally fishermen from Bethsaida, but when we meet them in the scriptures, they were fishing out of the town of Capernaum. And the reason for that is Capernaum's on the water, and Bethsaida is about eight miles away inland. It's probably the fish where there's water. Good idea. Now, Andrew was more reserved and was inquisitive, but he would ask his questions in private and showed a pretty simple faith. He was characterized by humility, openness, and a lack of prejudice. Maybe you're like Andrew. You have questions but are, and are a diligent seeker of truth, but you don't like the limelight. You do not like to be the center of attention all. And he is the model for all Christians who labor quietly in humble places and positions, yet still seek the Lord and still want God's will for their lives. The next apostle is James, the son of Zebedee. We will talk about his brother John also, but most of what we say about James also applies to John or throughout the Gospels where James is mentioned, so is John. They're a set. James and John were characterized early on as being 
enthusiastic, zealous, aggressive, and somewhat vengeful. In Mark 3.17, Jesus called them sons of thunder. Roar. In, in Luke 9.52-54, we read that as they were going through Samaria, they became victims of religious and racial animosity. James and John responded saying, and see if this fits some of you as you're driving down the freeway, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Original road rage. Does it sound familiar? Well, it's not a great use of their power. Their passion for Jesus is commendable, but their quick sentence of judgment and quest for vengeance kind of missed the mark a little bit. But... They are examples of how through Christ one's character can change. John was brash, zealous, ambitious, and vengeful, as was James. Yet we find in the epistles of John that John wrote toward the end of his life showing vastly different characteristics. He'd become gentle, loving, and selfless. The Holy Spirit can do the same in all our lives. But we need to yield our temperament to him first. We need to yield and then we will change. Philip had a practical analytical mind, which is generally a virtue, but something that hindered him from spiritual discernment at times. In John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it is Philip that Jesus, it's to Philip that Jesus asks, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And the text there tells us that Jesus said, this is to test Philip. And Philip didn't do very well. Philip at once calculated it out in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Now, Philip is practical, yet he did not see the bigger picture, and did not see it would have to be the Lord that would provide, not him. Maybe you see yourself somewhat like Philip. Your tendency is to be thinking and practical, but a little short in the spiritual insight, the broader insight. God can use even, God can use you even as he used Philip, if you will let him. The next apostle was Philip's friend Nathaniel, who is also known as Bartholomew. He too, like Philip, was a student of the Old Testament and earnestly sought God's truth and the coming of the Messiah. However, Bartholomew was affected by prejudice. And instead of judging Jesus from Philip's report, what Philip said about him, he judged Jesus according to where Jesus was raised, saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? However, Bartholomew was more controlled by truth than prejudice, so he ended up following Jesus. Jesus helped change his prejudice, eliminate his prejudice. Brings us to Thomas. Thomas' pessimism is well known. When Jesus took the disciples with him and he went to raise Lazarus from the dead, it was Thomas being aware of the danger of going to Jerusalem, which was the stronghold of the scribes and the Pharisees, said, let us go also that we may die with him. He fully expected the religious leaders to seize and to kill Jesus and them along with it. This expresses the doubts of Thomas about the miracle which Jesus was about to work. Moulton says these words reveal love, but they are the language of despair and vanished hope. 
There's an important lesson to be gained from Thomas that if we're truly looking to know the truth and we're honest with ourselves and others about our struggles and our doubts, God will faithfully meet us and reveal himself to us just as he did for Thomas. We already know much about Matthew, also called Levi. The man considered to be a traitor to his nation being a tax collector and worse than thieves and prostitutes has changed into the apostle whose primary ministry is to those he was supposed to have been a traitor to, the Jewish people. Matthew marveled at being called. However, it shows that your past is no hindrance to what God can do with you. Your past doesn't matter. God can change you. Come anew to him. And all that's forgiven. Like us, Matthew longed to be accepted and loved. Matthew recognized Jesus as someone worth sacrificing for. So he gave up his comfortable life to serve and follow him. The tax collector had a great life, rich. But Matthew wanted more, needed more. And Jesus gave it to him. The next three apostles we're going to take as a group because there's not just... There's not much known about him. First is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also called James the Lesser. Both names are to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. He was called the Lesser either as a reference to being younger in age or possibly smaller in size. It's okay to be short. (laughs) But nothing he said or did was ever recorded. So he's just in these three lists. James the Lesser. Thaddeus, a name usually used as a reference to the youngest child in a family, is also called Judas, the son of James. He was looking like the rest of them for Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom, and he did not understand how Jesus could do that and keep it hidden from the world. How can you keep your ministry from the world if you're going to set up a kingdom? It doesn't doesn't make sense. And that's all we know about Thaddeus. Of Simon the Zealot, uh, only his, this title gives us some insight to him as probably a member of a radical political party of the Zealots. This is the most, in, actually I find this one more, more interesting. They wanted, the Zealots wanted Rome overthrown and used guerrilla tactics which included assassinations, ambushes, and similar tactics to achieve their ends. In other words, Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. My mouth, your ears. But whatever originally motivated Simon to join Jesus, the negative was replaced with increasing devotion to the Savior. He too had his life turned around and was able to serve the Lord. Like these three, you may feel that you are obscure and unimportant, but God can and will use you if you will let him. God will... God will use those who seek him regardless of personal characteristics or backgrounds. That leaves one. Fortunately, there was only one Judas Iscariot. And in the church, they're a small minority. Here is a man controlled by self-desire, a covetous man of whom Scripture records that he stole from the group's purse, for he was their treasurer, His greatest act of covetousness was his betrayal of the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. 
His greatest hypocrisy, using a kiss as a sign of betrayal to the Lord. God needed, listen to this, this is why he was chosen. God needed a man with a wicked heart. And he found it in Judas. However, Judas fulfilled the reason he was chosen. God chose rightly, no matter what we think of Judas. Like the apostles sent out by Jesus onto the mission field, the ability to serve God was not based on their abilities, but on God's ability. Let me say that again a little differently. The ability to serve God is not based on our abilities, but on God's ability. Like them, God can change you, equip you, and empower you to serve him, but you must be willing to follow and yield yourself to the Holy Spirit just like the apostles did. They were ordinary men who did extraordinary things because they served the living God. Now for the rest of the story. Back to Multnomah School of the Bible. At the end of the day, those who went out came back together with those who stayed and prayed and shared the stories of how God blessed them the two in my story did not want to share their failure. It was embarrassing, it was defeating, and in no way would they share. In the middle of the student gathering, President Aldrich came up on the platform and interrupted. This is what he said. The school just received a call from a woman who had two of our students knock on her door. Her husband had just died this morning and she wants to talk to someone about the tract. We're sending someone right over now to talk to her. Wow. The greatness of God's grace is seen in his choosing the undeserving to be his people and the unqualified to do his work. It should be a marvelous encouragement to every believer to know that the apostles had a nature just like ours. We are tempted to become discouraged and disheartened when our spiritual lives and, and witness suffer because of our sins and our failures. Satan tries to convince us that those shortcomings make us useless to God. But Jesus, using the apostles, testifies to the opposite. The apostles did not lead the church in turning the world upside down because they were extraordinarily talented or naturally gifted or even great listeners but because despite their human limitations and failures, they surrendered themselves to God whose power is perfected through Jesus Christ in man's weakness. To this day, no one knows the real outcome of that visit to that woman by Multnomah School. They only knew that they did what was asked of them, even with an uncertain outcome. Like the apostles, they too realized that the ability to serve God was not based on their abilities, but on God's ability. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Gospels and the beautiful truth that Jesus is the Messiah of our spiritual king and our spiritual king. Thank you for the many things we can learn from the commission Christ gave to his apostles and apply it to our own lives. We recognize that in your grace you chose us who would believe on Jesus' name and trust him as our Savior to witness to a lost world and to now entrust us to be a light to lost sinners and ministers of the new and better covenant in Christ's blood. Thank you for your love towards all of your people of faith and help us to live and work 
for your praise and your glory. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.